0: Episode 31. I completed the last leg of my medical training when I was 31 going on 32. Steffi Graf and Roger Federer have made it to the Grand Slam finals 31 times each, and guess who's won more finals? The initial downturn in 1929 was thought to turn into a full-fledged depression because of a series of bank panics that happened in 1930 and 1931. Beyond MD, episode 31, here we go! When I started the Beyond MD podcast two years ago, I had friends reach out to me, and they said, you have to interview Jane and Paul Healy. And I kind of laughed at the time, and I said, guys, they're not going to know who I am. I'm just getting started, but today, I feel thrilled and so grateful to have them on the show. Now, it's my view, and I think a lot of people will share this view with me, that what Jane and Paul have done for Canadian physicians, I would describe this as a beautiful collegial act. It starts with Physician Financial Independence, the Facebook group that they started, but it goes so far beyond that because Jane and Paul have been lecturing, teaching, mentoring and supporting physicians across the country for so, so many years. And I have to say my first encounter with them, I had a chance to chat with them October 2021. And what struck me at that time is that they were so willing to give up their time. That just showed me that they are genuinely interested. In seeing their fellow physician colleagues succeed and thrive. And I really have to tip my hat to them because I know they get pulled in so many directions. So, for those who don't know our guests, Dr. Jane Healy is a hospital based pediatrician at Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga, and Dr. Paul Healy is an emergency physician at Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital. And together, they started Physician Financial Independence on Facebook in 2017, which now has more than 30,000 members. And it's a safe space for physicians to teach one another about personal finance and happiness and does not accept any advertising and is free from any industry bias. And Jane and Paul are strong advocates for promoting financial literacy and reducing burnout in medicine. And they pride themselves on being a neutral, non-biased source of information for Canadian doctors. Now, we hit on a lot of important points in this interview, but the part that is most meaningful to me, so deeply meaningful, is how do we approach the subject of money with our kids? I can tell you right now, my boys are 5 and 8, it's maybe a bit early, but it's monkey see, monkey do. So myself and my wife Seema, we have to set the example. The boys are going to do what they see. And it is my hope that with their exposure, with their experience, they learn to value memories, experiences, and relationships over material goods. So that's enough with the intro. Let's get on with the show. Hey Paul and Jane, Uh, welcome to the podcast. I've been waiting so long to have you guys and so excited to sit down with you today. And where does the pod find you?
1: Uh, We're in Oakville, Ontario. We're at home.
0: Awesome. So Paul, Jane, I think if you threw out names of of physicians in Canada and, and physicians that people would know, I think you guys, honestly, based on everything you've done for our profession, you're at the top of the list. And I think most people... Know about physician financial independence. So for those people who don't, it's a it's a group started uh, by Paul and Jane for for physicians and their spouses on on Facebook, and it's a safe space for all of us to discuss personal finance. And so, guys, I I want to just really hear from you. Can I? Who came up with the idea for this? How did it come up? Like, was there, uh, was it just kind of a a spur of the moment decision or were there personal experiences that led up to you coming up with physician financial independence? I'd love to hear it.
2: Well, I can tell you that really the group was created at our kitchen table downstairs. And really it was because I was involved in a few uh, women physician groups and there would always be questions about finance, practice management, investing, But these were spaces for women physicians. And Mm -hmm. at the time, I was still learning a lot about finance. And this has been an interest of Paul's for, you know, ever since we've met. And I was often going to him, like, what should I say? You know, what's the answer to this? And of course, he couldn't join those groups because he's not. A woman physician. Because I was a boy, they wouldn't let me. And so so we just decided to create our own group. And um, we decided to also allow spouses to join because just from speaking to our colleagues, some people just find it really overwhelming to try and manage this aspect and defer it to their spouse, whether it be their medical or non-medical spouse. And so we really feel like phys- uh, finances are a team effort. And so that's why we wanted spouses to be part of it.
1: I-, I think too, it was also, you know, there was obviously a vacuum and a void that needed to be filled because there was, wasn't this conversation among physicians about what you should do uh, with your, your finances. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a long time, I would overhear things, you know, in the physician lounge of people talking about the stocks they'd bought or what they were investing in. And I kind of thought to myself, "Ooh, you know, do they really know what they're getting into there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and do they know sort of the downside of it? Uh, and so that kind of really motivated because I, I saw a lot of my colleagues." You know, and this is, seems kind of blunt, but it seems like they were kind of making bad decisions and getting ripped off with their finances. Okay, and so that really motivated us to kind of try and fill the space. And then it was a fun thing that we started out doing. We never thought it would get this big. Originally, we thought it was going to be some sort of book club where people would get together and we'd you know, talk. And you know, that's a very '90s view of the world. I realize a book club is a very '90s view of the world. But uh, and people said, "No, put it online," and we put it online, and then it, it just kept growing and growing you know, to where it's now over 30,000 members in Canada.
0: That is incredible. It's just as a testament to what PFI has accomplished. So as as you guys know, I was doing some interviews with physicians trying to see, is there room for kind of other financial resources in Canada? And we called the project off for for many reasons. But in my interviews, I learned so much from, from physicians. One physician in particular, he said, PFI literally changed the game because before PFI, Money would often be considered a bit of a taboo subject. People didn't really feel comfortable bringing it up. And people, simply put, didn't feel very comfortable with their with their level of knowledge. But a few people actually told me this, that you guys, in starting PFI, totally changed the game for physicians. So I think this is just a testament to what you guys have done. So just to be clear, though, you guys do have any finance background at all, or it's just completely an interest for you?
1: No, it's just been an interest. It's just always been something that I, I like to read about, sort of a, a hobby, and Jane's always just been naturally very good at it. And so it was just something that we we were always interested in. What were you going to say? You, uh...
2: No, I was just going to say that you, you just sort of mentioned about physicians mentioning the group and the impact. People will often ask us, you know, why do you keep doing this, right? Because as, as people hopefully know, we don't get any sponsorship money. We don't accept advertising. So it's a very different model than, for example, other groups that are out there, right, where you may see um, – You may see advertising revenue flowing in. Yeah. And and really the answer is, is what keeps us going is exactly that kind of feedback. Because one of the things that surprises us about running the group is we are regularly contacted by people who will say exactly that, you know, thank you so much for creating this group they're usually people who've never ever posted in the group. Mm-hmm. They're quiet. They're just yeah. quiet readers. Um, <laughs> and they will say exactly that, you know, you've changed our lives. I feel like you've set us up on a good financial path. So that's really what keeps us going and
1: it's a total surprise to us we never expected that that people would react that way there's been a lot of things that have been surprises sort of behind the scenes like uh, running the group but that was one is we get these really really nice heartfelt messages from people and uh, we're kind of like wow this is this kind of makes it worthwhile when you have to deal with some stuff that's maybe not so nice but that's been a surprise
0: oh 100 I, I can totally totally see that now paul you mentioned behind the scenes. I mean, you've been running this for a number of years now, there are a wide range of topics that are discussed on PFI. And, and I'm sure you've gotten to have a lot of one on one conversations with with our members. But just just curious, like, what have you learned running this group for so many years behind the scenes? What surprised you?
1: Well, there's been all kinds of different levels of, of surprise, I think. Uh, <laughs> if you want to look at it that way, as far as regarding physicians, uh, I think. Uh, I knew that we knew there was a vacuum that needed to be filled. That physicians just didn't talk to each other about money. They didn't know anything. I didn't realize how severe it was uh, and how much sort of rumor, uh, you know, sort of ruled the day. So, so that surprised us. Uh, the actual running of the group too. With the group getting so big that it has influence and power that other people are very worried about. So, you know, for example, we found out that large organizations were meeting to talk about PFI and what it meant for them, which seemed bizarre to us, because we're just, you know, two people sitting, you know, (laughs) in our house, you know, or tapping on our phones for Facebook. (laughs) And then we started getting, you know, some very angry messaging and people, you know, particular people threatening to, you know, file lawsuits against us. Oh, really? And then one particular <laughs> funny story we had is maybe do you do you want to tell this part or should well, I? Well, it started tell with me receiving
2: yeah. a phone call at work, uh-huh. which I interpreted as the police <laughs> looking for Paul. That's not actually what happened. You can take over.
1: So I get this <laughs> panicked call from. She's like, I just got a call through the hospital switchboard, and I think the police are looking for you over your YouTube video. Oh, God. And I said, "This <laughs> makes no sense." I said, first of all, who did you talk to? Who called you?" I don't know some group, some securities group. Because and, and oh, I'm
2: working at the hospital, I'm you know, like probably in the middle of a C-section, waiting <laughs> for to resuscitate a newborn, and I get this call through locating.
1: And and I said, so was it the OSC, the Ontario Securities Commission? And she said, yeah, I think that's it. And I think Jane had this vision of me being perp walked out of the hospital and <laughs> oh all over my my YouTube videos. But I actually had to call the se the OSC and speak to a representative from the OSC who said that they had received a complaint from a financial advisor that we were giving financial advice without the proper credentials. And I kind of said to him, I said, really? I said, you know, I'm I'm just a guy. I'm a nobody making YouTube videos. And is this a problem? He said, no, it's absolutely not a problem. But I have to read you these regulations, sir. And so he read me some regulations on the phone. And then I I went on my way. So there's been sort of a lot of funny drama behind the scenes and there's been other things too where I think because on Facebook people, you know, read us and get used to us typing and sort of mm-hmm. they have a Facebook voice almost, so the way we talk or interact on Facebook, they see us as approachable and we've been contacted by people in crisis who, you know, are looking for help and mm-hmm. somehow they feel they can they can trust us, which has been Uh, Also, a very big surprise to us.
2: Yeah, like I mean, I was I was contacted by you know a a young physician mom with a newborn who was going through you know a terrible separation and you know and I helped connect her behind the scenes with some resources and you know two years later she messaged me and said you know this really had nothing to do with finances Mm. but really she was messaging me to thank me for kind of supporting her in, in proceeding with breaking up from this, you know, in this abusive relationship and was sent me pictures of her now toddler and how well they're doing. So, so again, like that's not something I ever would have imagined would, would happen running a, you know, financial group on Facebook.
0: (laughs) That that is a really heartwarming story, Jane. You had such a positive impact on someone's life in that in that situation is just amazing. Finance for sure, I guess, tip of the iceberg, but it goes so far beyond that. There's a lot of situations that people are going through, and the fact that you're there to to guide them through that, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, I think the point of that too is that you know, it's a big part of physician wellness finance. Yeah. And you can't really separate it. And you have to also, like you said, there's a, people are uncomfortable talking about money. But I hope that the group has made people more comfortable and they understand the relationship between money and wellness and happiness. Uh, So I'm glad that that conversation is being had.
0: It it definitely is. But you know what? Uh, Be careful what you wish for, right? Like you set out to start this book club and here you are being contacted by the OSC, which I find just, (laughs) yeah, um, it's
1: just. It's it's a great story, though. That's the thing. I I love the story. I'm
0: I'm glad you shared that. But let's just go back to you guys. as a couple, I mean, even before you guys met, you know, I'm not trying to go back into your, your history here, but I just want to know, like, was finance always at the forefront for both of you? Maybe just talk to us about how you two evolved to to where you are now when it comes to finance playing such an important role in your lives.
2: Yeah, I think we came into our relationship with, with different skills. So, um, you know, my family were first generation immigrants. I came to Canada when I was 11, speaking zero English and essentially my parents were educated they were physicians in the Czech republic where which is where we left because wow. of communism okay. but we started out essentially with nothing right not mm-hmm. even speaking the language so um i we lived mm. under the poverty line for many years until my dad was able to sort of get through the you know the the that iteration of the IMG program and so we had to survive on very little and so i mean I will never lose those skills I had to acquire. And it's something that we've wanted to pass on to our kids as well, because they're just good habits to have, to, you know, save money and buy things mindfully. So I came in with, you know, those skills uh, really well honed, uh, but I didn't have any background or interest in investing. And so early on, you know, when we were in the early years of having young kids, I was a, I was very happy to let Paul handle all the, you know, investing decisions. But then I became more interested and I started asking him, you know, like, you know, where is our money and why and 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 so I wanted to start learning because I do think it's important even for people who don't have a lot of interest in all of this to have a basic overview of what is happening in the family finances. And and Paul would actually Sometimes sit me down and say, No, I need to show you because you need to know where everything is in case something happens to me. So it's really something we encourage everyone to do because I totally get it. Like I wasn't interested in a lot of this financial stuff before, but Mm -hmm. there's huge value in understanding at least the basics of where everything is. It's like we say, it's sort of a vital sign of your family is knowing what's happening with the finances. So even just a basic overview, I think, is really critical.
1: Yeah, no, I grew up very sort of middle class. And um, my parents, you know, didn't really necessarily go on to university. I was one of the first people in my family to go to university. And so I had a different appreciation of money, too, where I I had to have skills around frugality and spending. And then as far as investing, it was just always something I was interested in. But like most people, when you start investing – you bang around and you make a bunch of mistakes. And, and I did that too. Uh, and then finally, when I started kind of looking at it more of like a medical approach, like an evidence-based approach, I kind of figured out what I had to do and then realized that you know, this was sort of the approach we were going to take just with low cost index investing. So that's sort of how we we ended up where we are.
2: Well, and I think it's valuable to kind of share a bit of the background of how you learned, like the the things that you, how you bumped around and tried different things, right?
0: I was going to ask you, you know, Paul, you mentioned you made some mistakes along the way. And I mean, I, I, for example, when it comes to mistakes, when it comes to mortgages and buying homes, I am the poster boy for mistakes. Like I've made (laughs) Every mistake under the sun and I'm happy to share it with people. So Paul, when it comes to investing, you mentioned you made some mistakes. Like what would you how would you describe those mistakes?
1: Well, I, I think you have to try different things out. And one of the first things I did, I was part of a physician group and we were investing in individual stocks. And we would meet and socialize. And the socializing was fun. That was the part of the group I think that was the best part. But I think our choices were not always great. And I really learned in that situation that picking individual stocks was not something uh, that worked well, that really picking it was more about a narrative and a story that was attached to the stock and not really any sort of, you know, fundamental knowledge a, about it. So that's what I learned there. For a while there, I tried, you know, commodities and that sort of thing and, and bounced around and got bruised and said, hmm, yeah, I don't think I'm good at this. And I think I need to find something that works more consistently. So that's sort of where I ended up, where, where we ended up where we were.
0: Jane, you mentioned how you feel like not everybody may have an interest in finance, but it is important for most people to have a basic understanding. So like, I'll, I'll be honest, there's days in the house where I'll bring up finance at the dinner table and my wife, Seema, just looked at me one day and she's just like, okay, you know what? No finance talk tonight. She was just enjoying this delicious pizza. pizza. She's like, I don't want to <coughs> talk about this right now. But it brings me to a very important question. And that is like, like when you have important financial matters to discuss, big decisions to make, like, how do you guys approach these subjects do you just kind of bring it up on the spur of the moment or do you actually set set days of the week or month where you're like you know what we're gonna sit down and talk about this just to kind of help couples because it, it's a team it's a team effort i think at the end of the day so just to help couples kind of navigate this
2: yeah like i mean you know so i was i've always been sort of the detail oriented bookkeeper type so i prepare all the <laughs> spreadsheets for our accountant because Detail-oriented tasks are more my wheelhouse. Okay, and um, and but I started asking Paul, you know, wanting to understand, like, okay, why are we invested in these things? And we we do a lot of walking in our neighborhood, and th- those are our kind of our debrief sessions. We sort of sometimes joke that we go on our walk and okay, let's run the agenda, and we do some, you know, talk about some kid-related issue, and and that's when we kind of started talking about you know, some of these basics of in, in <clears throat> finance and investing. And, and there were a few times where we actually sat down together at the computer when, you know, it was time to buy um, investments. And I actually took some notes because no way was I going to remember what he was telling me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over time, again, I did have that interest to learn. So over time, I I learned a bit more. But I think that what's been really important, too, is, for example, we meet with our accountant together. We go together. Our accountant runs through all the numbers. You know, we ask our questions and we have a good overall understanding of what's happening in our kind of family finance and so I, I think mm-hmm. even that is helpful just to sort of have mm-hmm. that yearly meeting and to debrief. yep. Um, I,
1: I think the thing is that, you know, you know, we've been together a long time, so we've sort of settled into a routine for how we do things that you know, I take care of the investing and Jane does a lot of the the tracking and you know prepping for the accountant and that sort of thing. I think the thing is that when you're maybe young and starting out, You need to go with your strengths, right? I'm the short attention span emerge physician. So I'm not going to be great sitting, you know, at the Excel spreadsheet. I'm probably going to screw it up. Uh, But do the parts in your relationship that you're good at and you like. If there are parts that neither of you are good at, then maybe that's a part that you should be farming out to someone else. Uh, But make sure it all gets done and make sure you have at least a broad understanding of it. Um, But we don't set time to do it. It comes up fairly um, you know, organically, um, with our kids though, we make every effort we can to talk to them pretty much every chance we can about personal finance and investing and frugality, and uh, that's probably the area where we make more of an effort to talk, is not to each other but to talk to them.
0: Okay, you mentioned kids. I love it. I want to get into talking to kids about money because I haven't had a chance to pick anyone's brain on this yet. And I figure you two are the perfect people to speak to about this. So maybe just tell us, like, how old are your kids? And kind of when did you start to talk to them about money?
2: Yeah, so our our older daughter is, uh, she just turned 19. And our younger son is almost 14. And really, the truth is, is we've been talking to them about money in some way, shape or form their entire lives. Right? So Um, we were always very motivated, just given our backgrounds, we were always very motivated for them to not, um, become sort of overprivileged and, you know, have high expectations and entitlement. So we were always very sensitive about, um, wanting to avoid that. And, you know, I remember there was a time we went to a Paul's, one of Paul's colleagues, um, backyard pool parties, and and our son, who was, I think, three at the time, he arrived in the backyard and he kind of looked around. He scanned the backyard and he said, where is their hot tub? Oh, and that's his reality because we're fortunate to live in a home. We put in a pool and have a hot tub. So that's his reality. But we thought, oh, my God, like, oh, God. we have to make sure this kid understands yeah. that not everyone lives in a house that has a pool and a hot tub. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So. Yeah, I mean, so we talk to them about um anything and everything, right? When we go grocery shopping, mm-hmm. I still to this day even though I don't have to, price match, right? And and I do it now more to teach them these skills so they have them if they ever need them in their lives to um you know, to shop wisely yeah. and be careful with their money. Um, we would, for example, you know, our daughter was, um, is a competitive swimmer Mm -hmm. and, you know, that is not inexpensive, Mm -hmm. right. When they're in high school Mm -hmm. and at a fairly high level. So, um, we would, we would talk about that Mm -hmm. and not to make her feel guilty or, you know, make her feel bad about the cost of it, but just to sort of loop her in. So she understood that, you know, this is something that costs money and that we have to, you know set aside money for and budget for and it, you know it, it really entrenched I think increased sense of responsibility for for that activity for her so we never really had to chase her for you know and getting I think the thing and-
1: too is that we we try and take advantage of every opportunity and most of those opportunities are that to talk to your kids about money are going to be your ordinary day-to-day stuff yeah. that you do every day right So when you go out shopping, talk to them about credit cards, talk to them about debit cards, talk to them about the price of things, you know, teach them all of those different aspects, help them understand that everything has a cost, electricity, water, go over bills. And and really, the other thing is with kids that's important is that you have to lead by example. Mm -hmm. So it always kind of makes you look at yourself as well, because any skill that you want to teach them, you have to make sure that you have yourself. So you have to really model the behavior that you want to see with your kids. So that's always what we did. We wanted them to be frugal. We wanted them to understand the value of things. We wanted them to understand that not everyone lives the way that you do. One of the ways that we, you know, we kind of brought that home to them is that we showed them how we grew up and how different it is from how they grew up. So we did a trip to the Czech Republic, uh, you know, and Jane's dad uh, was, was with us as well. And they got to see, you know, where Jane grew up and we actually visited, you know, the, the refugee camp where they were for a while and they saw where I grew up, which was different than, than what they had. And so it really brought it home for them sort of the value of money and privilege uh, so we've, we've always tried to take advantage of every opportunity. Now that our daughter is 18, she can have She's a TFSA. sorry, 19. <clears throat> well, when she turned 18, she was eligible. I know my age of my kids. Thank know. you. But uh, she, when she turned 18, she was eligible for the TFSA. Yeah. So, you know, we, we did uh, make sure that she, she knew that and she understood how that worked and how the investments should work. So we try and take advantage of every opportunity as they age.
0: I think that's really, really nice advice, really practical advice. And in terms of just the the investment side of things, Paul, um, I'm wondering, like, how did you kind of approach that with with your daughter? Like, how did you talk to her about investing? Like, was it as simple as maybe holding up a graph of of the S&P 500 over the long term and being like, hey, like over the long term, this just goes up? Like, did they grasp that? I'm just curious, how did you kind of introduce them to the subject in a way that it sticks?
1: Yeah, the thing that resonated with her was I show I used the Globe and Mail TFSA calculator, and I said, "Hey, if you start at this age and you start saving now, by the time you're this age, you could have this many millions of dollars," and that really seemed to resonate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing too is that you know kids follow your emotional lead. You know yeah. they they want to please their parents, and and I think that she also understood that hey, this is something that kind of my dad wants me to do, and. And I think that'd be good. And I see the benefit. Um, and so it was, it was not a hard sell really, but that that's what got her really interested was that graph. And certainly they have to be a certain age to understand that they have to have some math and, and understand what that means. And they have to have spent money and understand what it means to have yeah. that much money. Yeah. Uh, so absolutely. And-, and they've
2: they've seen us, you know, very regularly, you know, <clears throat> every January, We contribute to our RSPs and TFSA, so then we've talked to them about that. So again, that's that point Paul made earlier about modeling the behavior, right? It's the same as if you want your kids to not smoke, the best way is to not smoke yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, they're going to want to wear a bike helmet if they see you do it. And so... It's that same principle where we would involve them in these conversations and say, hey, listen, this is, you know, these are the accounts and we contribute to them for this reason. So there is already that background.
1: And the other thing is we are completely open with them. So if they want to see the family finances, they get to see all the family finances. They understand that's not something that you share with other people, but we let them see what our investments are and they can see that we hold the same things that they do. Uh, and, and, uh, I think that that's been a useful experience for them.
0: We'll be right back. So today I have a bit of a treat. I have my five-year-old son Zion on the show, and I think he deserves a spot on the show because about a year ago, we asked him a question that was finance related and he blew our minds. So Zion, you're on today. And do you want to say anything to everyone? Hello, everyone. All right, Zion. So here is the question. Let's see how you do this time. If somebody gave you $100 today, what would you do with that money?
2: Get grizzly toys and the lemon, grizzly and the lemming toys.
0: Grizzly and the lemming toys. That is the wrong answer, my friend. You get a D for that one. You got an A plus last time. But anyways, so for those people who don't know... Grizz and the Lemmings is this really comical but slightly obnoxious show that people watch on Netflix and we put a temporary ban on it in the house because it's just resulting in way too much chaos. So as you can see, we still have a bit of work to do when it comes to talking about money, but it's still early for us. But for those of you who have kids who are approaching their teenage years... It's probably going to be one of the best investments you can make is to teach them and educate them about money from an early age. And so, with that, let's get back to our conversation with Paul and Jane. Oh, that that sounds amazing. I mean, I think that will only help them to feel more and more comfortable with the subject matter. And guys, I I really like how you mentioned you went to the Czech Republic to kind of see where Jane you grew up and your family grew up. I think that's so so important. So we. Are one day going to go to India and I can show my boys kind of where my parents grew up in in New Delhi. And I was talking to a friend recently who said, yeah, he's like, you know, my, my kids are younger than yours, but I'm taking them to Egypt. And I was like, that's an ambitious trip. And he's like, but you know what? They need to see where we grew up. They need to see how things operate in other parts of the world. And so with that we kind of hope that when our kids come back they feel more grateful for what they have. And and so the next time, you know, when they're in Disney, like they better be grateful, you know? Like it's it's amazing. Like I I also when it comes to entitlement with kids, you know, not to say that, you know, any kids in this conversation are are entitled not at all, but when I think back, like I, I made it to Disney when I was probably 14 or 15 years old, but now it's like we took our youngest when he was in diapers, can't remember anything, but it's just things get started so early. So I want the kids to to be grateful for, for what they have. And I think that comes by exposing them to exactly what you mentioned, how, how other people live. And I think yeah. that's going to stick.
2: Yeah. And even when you're doing, you know, these, it's not like we don't do anything sort of luxurious or, you know, higher end, but we always talk to them about that. Like, so for example, we've done a lot of cruises with them because they were just great, easy vacations with young kids. Mm -hmm. But for example, when we were on, you know, one of the Caribbean islands and there's this, um, there's this like long zip line, right? Mm -hmm. That is, looks really, really cool, but it costs like a hundred plus U.S. dollars, to go down and we actually timed it as a sort of, <laughs> as a as a way to talk to them about it because and it took like i don't know whatever it was 90 um, seconds and then yeah. we were like that is a lot of money for 90 seconds yeah. and again it's yeah. a dollar a
1: second it's a dollar so it's a second right <laughs> yeah yeah so so we didn't do it that day so sometimes that's the thing with your kids too is that you have to say no to them uh and as long as you explain your reasons uh, I think that's also a useful lesson. The last thing that Jane and I believe fairly strongly in as well is that kids should have jobs. Um, during the the pandemic, um, you know, our daughter was had a lot of free time and we said, well, you know, maybe you should get a job. And, uh, you know, all of the uh, long-term care facilities and retirement facilities were looking for people. We said, hey, they need help and you need a job, so you should probably apply there. And she did. And it was a great experience for her. She learned a lot. She learned things from an employer that she would never kind of learn from us. Things, difficult situations she had to manage. And so that's something else that we really believe in. Our son's going to turn 14 and we're strongly encouraging him to start looking for some employment as well, just so they have their own money and they have responsibilities. And and they get to work with people who, you know, maybe don't have a job that they like and they get to see that as well. And they get to have a, a job that maybe isn't very good just so that you learn what it's like to to have a hard job.
0: I I, I love that. That's something I would aspire to do for my kids as well when they're of the right age. And I think just getting them that job early teaches them hopefully the value of hard work and just appreciating the value of a dollar, right? But I mean, there's there's some hope on our end because I'll share a quick story. You know, my kids are, oldest is turning eight, youngest is five. And they had a visit with their great-grandma, which was long overdue in COVID. And what's very common in our culture is that, Uh, The grandparents, well, the great grandparents, really only will will give them uh, a small gift. So their great grandma, she gave each of the boys fifty dollars, and so in the moment we were just having fun, and we asked my oldest, uh, "What are you going to do with that money?" And so it's whatever, whatever hobby or fads like most common at that time. So he was, he he was getting into Pokemon, really into hockey. So he's like, you know what, Dad, I'm going to go buy some cards. And I looked at my youngest. I was like, okay, buddy, like, what are you going to do? And he's like. I'm going to take this $50. And he's, he was four at the time. He's like, I'm going to take this $50. I'm going to turn it into a hundred. And I was just like, Oh my goodness. Like in that moment, I almost, I like, I literally, I shed a tear. Like I couldn't say anything. And I looked at my wife and yep. I was like, there's hope there's hope. So
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, you should be proud. That's a parenting mic drop. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Parent.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, the, the, the jobs uh, thing, I think it was even, you know, we worked, um, as teenagers, um, More out of necessity, you know. Certainly for me, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money at the time, still, and and so if I wanted something other than donated clothes, like I was going to have to buy them with my own money. And for our kids, it's obviously very different. But you know, it was just very. it, It was so nice to hear the things that she would come home Mm -hmm. from this job having learned. And so as Paul mentioned, you know, just working with people who, you know, they, they were often, you know, recent immigrants and, um, were working multiple jobs just to make ends meet. She, she tells a story of a coworker that she really liked who was trying to get her driver's license Mm -hmm. and just struggled. Right. And it's something that was so easy for for our daughter, right? We paid for her driving mm-hmm. lessons and she always had access to a car mm-hmm. and we'd take her to practice. Whereas her coworker had none of those things. Like she had all these barriers. She didn't have access to a car. She couldn't afford driver's lessons, you know, and and she realized how her life was so different from from others, right? Yeah. And even though she kind of knew it before mm-hmm. experiencing it on that level mm-hmm. of something that she could relate to was just like, it was just like a whole other level of, of learning. Oh, absolutely. So.
0: Absolutely. Um, what I, I want to maybe now shift into, because I think, guys, your perspectives are going to be really useful here. It's just some, some basic finance. I want to get your thoughts on this. So there's always been the old debate of, do I invest money or do I pay off debt? And I really have some of our younger colleagues top of mind here, because when they come out of their medical education now, I mean, they have sometimes monstrous debt you know far higher than we did because education is getting expensive and cost of living is also higher now so that doesn't help so interest rates are also rising so it's a very timely question but guys I would love your your take here on paying off debt versus investing because the advice often is well invest because the rate of return is gonna be higher than the interest you're gonna have to pay what's your take
1: yeah, I think first off, we have to acknowledge, and I think you've said it, that the position that we're in is much better than our younger colleagues. And I think it's a responsibility of sort of the more middle-aged people like us and the older physicians to understand that the younger cohort behind it has it much, in a much more difficult, uh, much harder than we had it. So that's the first thing. As far as debt, you know, we've been concerned about this for a long time. I, I think our position has always been, and what we did was we paid off debt first and then we started investing. Okay. But increasingly, you know, you can see in our group and, you know, people will message us and say, I'm thinking about using this $350,000 line of credit that I have that I haven't touched. And it's just bothering me so much that it's sitting there and I feel like I should use it. And I feel like I should use it to invest. And our position has been that you really shouldn't be doing that because that's leveraged investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that you know, if you're going to keep debt and not pay it off and invest, I think you have to understand that that is leverage investing. Essentially, you're deciding to borrow or maintain debt so that you can invest. And the problem with that is, you know when interest rates were low, mm-hmm. everyone would say, "Oh, you know what? I'll make more money investing it than I will. Look, the interest rates are only two or three percent. But now we're experiencing the flip side of that because when interest rates are high, All of a sudden, paying off your debt becomes much more difficult. And that's kind of the message that we tried to communicate to people is, yes, I know interest rates are low, but this is the time where every dollar you put towards your debt will help to reduce your capital, Mm -hmm. will help you to pay it off. Mm -hmm. And now if you're going to pay 7% versus, you know, you were paying 2%, you're going to feel a big difference. So I'm very concerned about the number of medical students, residents, young staff that I see. Who are deciding to, you know, borrow money or use their line of credit uh, to invest and do leverage investing? And I've said very clearly, I don't think you should do leverage investing unless you are a mid-career physician who has a full RSP, a full TFSA, you know, a paid-off house, you have significant investments, then you can consider doing leverage investing as long as you can then cover the payments. Uh, that would that would result yeah. from from borrowing money, and and in that situation it's fine, but it really is a non-starter for young um, physicians or medical students or residents because you may be in a situation where you purchase investments and the value of those investments decrease, yeah. and now you have a stock portfolio or an investment portfolio that's worth less than you paid for it. But you still got to pay full price because you have to pay off the debt. Right. And it's very hard to become financially independent if you're carrying debt. So our position has been pay off debt, then invest. And I understand the mathematical argument as to why you should should not pay off debt and invest. The problem is that most people are not disciplined enough investors mm-hmm. to, to carry that out. Uh, there's nothing quite like agreeing to pay off debt, being frugal, and saving money to pay it off. And we find that when people get in this mindset of, well, I'm an investor now, I don't need to pay off my debt. The debt just never gets paid off.
0: Yeah, I think that is really, really good advice. Not, nothing at all to add there except one story where I was talking to a medical student out West. And the one refreshing part of the conversation was that they were getting interested in finance and and showing curiosity and learning about all this stuff. And But then it Came very apparent midway into the conversation that this person told me you know what a lot of my classmates they've taken their lines of credit and they've basically dumped into crypto and I was just like oh god you know so he's like they made a lot of money he's like I'm not going to do that but you know that that made me very very nervous and especially when we see how volatile things are and on top of that you have higher interest rates so I I mentioned this in my podcast with Steph Zhao that yeah I also have concerns about leverage investing all the reasons that you mentioned
2: yeah. And I'm, I mean, we're seeing evidence of that in the group, in the anonymous posts, right? Where, you know, I'm a medical student or I'm a, you know, R1 and, you know, I invested in crypto yeah. and now what, right? Now I need more money to actually finish my education. Yeah. So there, there's some real, real risks.
0: Absolutely. You guys had a really good lecture. I think, Paul, it was one of your earlier videos on kind of the pillars of financial independence. And I think in that you went over some basic concepts and I want to just talk about the the savings rate and kind of how to optimize that because now our cost of living is going up. A lot of physicians live in high cost of living areas and I think it's important to find ways to to move the needle in the right direction when it comes to optimizing that savings rate because once you save then, then you can invest and I'm just curious what practices or measures really helped you both as a couple in terms of optimizing your savings rate because I can tell you I give some people a hard time including my sister if she's listening like I I always tell her like oh you're buying all these expensive lattes all the time like just drink drip coffee but then when I take a step back I'm like what's going to move the needle more significantly it's probably focusing on your house your car you know eating out rather than the odd latte so like I want to know how you guys kind of approach this
1: well we're not big budget people we we've never really budget budgeted. I think for us, it's more about really understanding um, what brings you happiness, uh, and then also the with when you're spending money, understanding that it's interchangeable with your time. So understand sort of really what you make an hour after your taxes and expenses. And if you're going to make a big purchase, kind of say, you know, what do I really want to work an extra six shifts? just to buy, you know, this particular upgrade on my car or to buy an expensive car. Is that really worth a year of me working uh, to do that? Mm-hmm. So we really try and do that sort of, you know, conversion in your head of, you know, when you spend money, you're actually spending your own time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's sort of the, one of the ways we look at it. And for us, it's really just a, it's an ingrained value judgment when we spend money. Cause we look at it, we go, oh, is that really worth it to spend that? Is that really going to make us happier? And the answer is usually no. And, and usually when you're purchasing things, it makes you feel happy for a short period of time for maybe a few days afterwards. But it's not really sort of that long-term happiness 100%. that sticks. That long-term happiness is more from, I think, spending time doing novel and interesting things with the people you love and the people you have relationships with. And those are the things that that we try and, and concentrate on rather than material things. So really for us, it's more of a value judgment at the time of purchase rather than a budget decision.
2: Yeah. And and we really, I think that, you know, as physicians, especially, we always struggle to find that work life balance, right? Like we're always in search of this, this uh, elusive balance. And it, the finances are part of that, right? Because as Paul mentioned, when you spend money, you're trading your time, For that money you're spending. And so we really value our time at home, time with each other, with our kids. And so we're, we're very protective of it. And that's actually one of the main reasons we really advocate keeping investing simple, right? Because, um, some people really like to get into it and try and, you know, do all kinds of things with tax optimization and this and that. And it gets very time consuming. And we we don't want to spend the time doing those extra things because they just that wouldn't bring us additional value so we're very protective of our time and that translates into just naturally making decisions about purchases and you know again it's it's very it comes very easy to us because we come from very you know um, not fancy backgrounds, right? So it doesn't take a lot for us to, you know, to enjoy a dinner out, right? It doesn't have to be at the top restaurant. That's not saying that people shouldn't enjoy those things. It's just for us, it doesn't bring us um, a lot of value to go really fancy. So we just sort of maintain those principles. Mm-hmm. And luckily, we agree on them.
1: Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. um, um, I, I love it. I,
1: I think one of the Yeah. One of the things I'd point to is Jane talked about sort of principles and and sort of what's important to you. And I think we don't spend a lot of money on material goods because for us, it's not necessarily about the stuff that money buys. It's about the security that it provides. The fact that we know that, you know, if we had to stop working tomorrow, we'd still be able to stay in our house. Our kids would still be able to do all the things they normally do. We would still be able to travel. And the reason that we have that security is because of our savings. And the reason we have our savings uh, is because we didn't spend money at that sort of point of purchase when we were looking to to buy something. So understand your overall goals. Understand, think about your future self a bit, because this is the other thing that I think I want to communicate to physicians is we're getting to be middle-aged now. So we're starting to feel sort of the the uh, (laughs) middle-age creaks and bumps and stuff. And so it's nice at our age to, to have that security where we have no stress about money or having to work. If we needed to walk away from work, we could. Um, and that is all because we decided on principles early on that prioritized security rather than stuff.
2: And it's, it's tricky because you know, oftentimes you know, you'll, you'll, there'll be the conversations about, well, you never know, you may die tomorrow right? And you can't take it with you. And that's all very true, right? And it's just very inconvenient that none of us usually don't, we don't know how long we're going to be yeah. around. And so, yes, you can die tomorrow, but you can also live to be 95, mm-hmm. right? And so you you sort of have to plan for somewhere in the middle of that, right? And so, um, you know, I think sometimes people look at, you know, your two physicians and, you know, you could be spending money a lot more. And while that's true, we're very happy with, we still feel like our lifestyle is extremely luxurious. And again, it's something we're trying to model for our kids, right? That you don't need to fly first class when you get on a plane. We've never actually flown first class. Although maybe when we like retire, (laughs) that's sort of something we may consider, right? But it's just kind of, as a mindset, trying to be happy with less stuff um, is, it's just how we are and what we try and model for our kids. Yeah, and it just also happens to save money.
0: <laughs> There's so much wisdom in that message. And I think that's really going to resonate with people. Um, Paul, you, you talked about what you felt were earlier mistakes. I was going to ask you guys, what, what is like the biggest financial blunder to date? I have so many, but I always ask people this.
1: I can't honestly say that we made a blunder where we lost a whole bunch of money. Um, I think that the the blunder was just in that uh, you know I, I purchased a stock or tried to you know buy a commodity and and it dropped and I looked at it and said, well, why did I think that I could predict that anyway? So that was the part of the blunder. but you know for me I, I think it was probably the early investing missteps okay. of you know trying to do commodities and trying to do individual stocks okay. uh, and uh, but again, not a huge financial loss, but nevertheless, a bit of a egotistical blunder to think that I could pick what would go up and what wouldn't.
0: What uh, What is the best advice that either of you has has received?
1: Financial advice.
0: Oh, it I could mean. be, no, you know what? It could be financial, professional, personal, anything that ga- gave you some meaning in your life, anything.
2: Well, I think that, you know, it's always good to listen to our colleagues in palliative care, right? Who will tell you that their patients at the end of life will often reflect back on their life. And say that, you know, relationships and experiences were the most important thing and most valuable. And so that's, that's really what we live by, right? We try and figure out what the, you know, right balance is where you work enough and you achieve those financial goals to get that financial security, but not necessarily overdoing it to the point that relationships with the people that you love suffer. And again, when spending money, focusing more on the experience's part rather than the stuff that you end up with that may not necessarily bring you that much happiness
0: i love that and uh, any final message you'd like to share with the listeners
1: understand that it's okay to talk about money and it's okay to talk about the relationship that money has with happiness that you know it's not wrong to uh, you know be concerned about You know, what you're being paid. It's not wrong to, you know, want to be paid for your skill. Uh, And then uh, when you are making money, I I think it's important to take care of the people that are close to you and take care of other people, uh, you know, charitably, but that it's uh, not, shouldn't be a taboo subject. And one of the things that, you know, we talk about when we give our talks is that, you know, as physicians, we understand that. Not talking about something, a taboo issue. If you're talking with your patients either about alcohol or drugs or sex, if you don't speak to them and you don't have that conversation, it creates a vacuum. And anywhere there's a vacuum, there's going to be greater problem because there's no discussion about it. So I think as far as money with physicians, I think that that's something that everyone should be comfortable talking about and talking openly and honestly about. And I think that's what PFI is about.
0: Guys, I just really want to thank you both for your time because I, I know how, how busy you are. I, I know at the physician empowerment conference, for example, Jane, you were on the West Coast. You were traveling, you were lecturing, you guys get pulled in so many directions. You're so gracious with your time. And so I'm I'm very grateful for you guys giving up this time to to talk to me. And I I just have to reiterate the collegial act that you guys have have pursued here for our profession through PFI, through mentoring is just absolutely tremendous and so we all talk about adding impact and adding value to the world and i mean yeah rest assured like you guys have your legacy intact in, in my opinion you've done so much for the profession so i just want to thank you
2: well and same to you yeah you you're doing great work on this podcast and getting lots of very helpful information out to people so so i think it's um it's an important subject um we know very little about it as a sort of uh as a profession but hopefully that's changing with you know our efforts and your efforts and the more information that's out there the better
0: uh, thanks jane for uh, those kind words and guys thank you again okay it was lovely to chat
1: great thanks, thanks so much for
2: having us
0: take care Bye. bye bye I'm so thankful to Paul and Jane for coming on the show and I think that there are a lot of people out there who will benefit from hearing their message. So if you know somebody who doesn't yet know of the pod or you feel would really enjoy listening to this episode, please feel free to share. You can tag me, tag Paul, tag Jane. The more people that listen to what they have to say, I think the better. Thank you for your ongoing support. Reviews, ratings, and feedback are always welcome. Reach out to me anytime at beyondmdpodcast at gmail.com or you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on LinkedIn and we'll see you in about three weeks. Stay well and stay savvy.